0: Northern Seminary and the Center for Theological Integrity. This is The Pastor's Table. Today's church leaders are weary and burnt out from trying to lead in the machine of corporate leadership systems. The Pastor's Table brings you conversations with local pastors working out deep theological convictions in their churches. Here are your hosts, Reverend Tara Beth Leach and Dr. Mark Quanstrom. Welcome to The Pastor's Table. I'm Mark Wastrom.
1: And I'm Tara Beth Leach. And friends, we're so excited to gather at the table today to continue working out incarnational ministry, what that means, uh, what that means for us as boots on the ground pastors. And we had an incredible conversations with uh, Dr. Beth Felker-Jones. And today we are so thrilled to welcome Jay Kim. Jay has been a friend of mine for a few years. And I've just been such a cheerleader of his ministry, of um, his work as a theologian. For those of you that don't know, Jay is a pastor in Silicon Valley and just recently, a year ago, became the lead pastor at Westgate Church. Uh, He is a prolific author. He's written Analog Church as well as Analog Christian, which just came out. Incredible read. 40 Days Through Colossians, and a number of other works. But I'm truly grateful to call Jay a friend, and we're so glad to have you here today. Welcome, Jay.
2: Uh, Thank you both so much for having me.
1: Jay, as as I mentioned, we've been having this conversation at this table about incarnation. And you've written this book um, a couple years ago called Analog Church, Why We Need Real People, Places, and things in the digital age. I, I'm curious if you would be able to just share for a few moments, how did you come to write this book? I mean, you wrote this from Silicon Valley, which, <laughs> wow. Tell us tell us yeah. how you got here.
2: Yeah, I, it's it's not accidental. I've lived in Silicon Valley basically my entire life. I moved here when I was, I was a toddler. And uh, it wasn't Then, what it is now, but it was still uh, in many ways one of the hubs um, of digital technology. Uh, I remember my uncle when I was a young child, he worked at IBM. So, um, and we lived with him. My mother and I lived with my uncle and my aunt for several years when I was in elementary school. So, our house was, you know, full of these IBM personal computers. I remember playing these. these like Winter Olympics games on the computers. I just have this vivid memory. So anyways, I, I, I grew up surrounded by um, computer technology. And so that led to a real fascination. Uh, and then, of course, parallel to that, Silicon Valley in the last 40 years has become the epicenter of digital technology and um, the church where I serve on staff. Uh, we are 10 minutes from the main campus. Um, people have seen you know, images of it, I'm sure, the big, giant, round spaceship building that Apple built um, several years ago. So we're about 10 minutes away, and many of our congregants um, work at Apple, and the majority of our congregants work in digital technology in some way. And so it, I'm surrounded by it. It's pervasive and ubiquitous here. And, and what that then means is that my conversations often find themselves at the intersection of uh, the vocation and the work that people are doing and their faith. And so that has led me over the course of several years to asking questions about um, the intersection between our ecclesiology and our discipleship to Jesus and how the digital age and the technologies of our day are informing and even forming those realities in us and, and through us. And so that's really where it came from. It's just this is home and this is sort of the air I breathe. And as a follower of Jesus and as someone who deeply loves the local church, uh, it's it's the question in front of me, so to speak. So, um, yeah, that's where the book and some of my other work has has come from.
0: So your congregation is a congregation that works digital all week long. And it's that world very easily. And I'm thinking that the digital world could probably overwhelm or over, overwhelm your, your folk. And you're doing a real live church in Silicon Valley. And, it, and as you said, it was your location that prompted this book. You titled it Analog Christian and Analog Church. Analog over against digital because for those who are not tech savvy, which may be a lot of us, uh, what's the difference between analog and digital?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think analog, the word analog, has sort of an elasticity of meaning, a breadth of meaning, but I, I intend to use the word in what, what I would consider its most sort of baseline definition, which is, you know, tactile, physical, um, visceral, uh, and, you know, the... The, uh, the theological way to understand it would be the idea you all have been exploring incarnational in the fleshness. So that's really what I'm what I'm um, suggesting by that word. you know by analog church, uh, what I mean is church as an embodied incarnational in the flesh show up even though it's inconvenient sort of reality and um, especially now coming out of, the season that has been and the season that's sort of lingering, you know, with the pandemic and all the sort of conversation around online church and streaming services and all of those sorts of things. Um, I My hope is that people sort of understand the juxtaposition almost in their body. It's like, Oh, analog. You mean like showing up to a thing, being in a real place with real people uh, and over and against, like you said, um digital you know a sort of detached uh, mediated over screens and technology sort of reality so yeah that's that's basically what i mean by analog
0: could you tell a little bit about your uh story how you got to uh church in silicon valley you said you grew up in silicon valley uh, this is not your first uh assignment or your first charge uh how is it that you uh, are a follower of jesus christ and how is it that you found yourself or find yourself a pastor of a church?
2: Great question. Yeah, I'll try to keep it short and not bore anybody. I um I grew up the son of an immigrant mother who worked two, three jobs at a time. I'm Korean American. So we immigrated here when I was, again, really young um, from South Korea. And so I grew up attending a Korean American church. And for those who aren't, um familiar ethnic churches are more than just an hour and fifteen minutes on a Sunday morning. Ethnic churches become essentially the the hub and epicenter of social life for ethnic families, for minorities and so I grew up going to church like three, four times a week i mean i was I was there all the time and it became um it became you know a second home for me, sort of a respite from all of the chaos that was my life growing up. So I grew up in the church and uh, I grew up sort of immersed in 90s evangelical youth subculture. And uh, so I listened to a lot of, you know, Jars of Clay and DC DC Talk. Talk on the weekends. And then, you know, a lot of Nirvana and Pearl Jam on the weekdays sort of thing. And then, um, so I thought that meant I had a rich, robust faith in Jesus. But when I, when I got to college, my freshman year of college, I went through what is sadly now a very common deconstruction season. I read like half a philosophy book and thought I was really smart and threw away (laughs) the faith of my childhood. You know, I went through one of those things when I was 19 and, um, walked away from my faith, probably considered myself an agnostic at that time. But, and this is a part of why incarnational ministry means so much to me, outside the theology of it, just my own story, um, I I eventually encountered the risen Christ, I think, truly for the first time in my life in my early 20s, because there was a group of guys who were several years older than me that I had grown up with in the church, who, despite my deconstruction, they never they never gave up on me. And they started inviting me on Monday nights to one of their houses. And there was a group of four guys we'd get together and um, we'd eat pizza and play video games and just hang out. And then inevitably always every Monday night around 10 30 or 11 PM, the conversations would go from, you know, whatever, like just random stuff um, to the deeper things of life. They would begin creating space and room for me to bring my doubts and my questions and my frustrations and my longings. And long story short, through that sort of community, that embodied community where we were literally we were breaking bread together and sharing life with one another, I encountered Christ in a real way. And so that that these guys were all um, volunteering in youth ministry at the time. They all had full-time jobs and all of that, but they were also spending their Wednesday nights and Sundays, you know, leading small groups of you know high school, middle school boys. They invited me to to join them in that, and so I became a, a volunteer, seventh grade, small group leader, and that experience changed my life, just pouring into these uh, young boys and, and, and their questions sort of framing and shaping me, and I just fell in love with it, and, and through that process, felt a really strong call at the time, specifically to youth ministry. So became a youth pastor in the early 2000s. And uh, and and here we are, twenty years later. So that's kind of the short of it.
1: Wow, wow! Well, thanks, Jay. I I I can see why this idea of analog church and incarnation, incarnational ministry, is so important to you because it was it was in a living room with real people, yeah. with real yeah. elements of breaking bread together that you experienced the transforming power of Christ. And I would imagine that, like you, um, you know, I am constantly thinking about the things that are shaping our people, um, the uh, the liturgies that are forming our people, the quote public pastors that are are guiding our people, and we live in a world that is um, being shaped and formed by many things. That's not new. Um. The newer things are uh, those digital spaces, you know. In particular, um, the the young people that I'm pastoring are being shaped and formed by influencers, Instagram and TikTok and the like. And some of the people that I that I pastor that maybe are are from the Boomer generation, um, they're being pastored by CNN and Fox News and MSNBC. And as I think about that, I think that, you know, there's there's a lot at stake right now. And especially the way that the pandemic has in many ways expedited this um digital push uh to pastoring people through the airways, through uh social media. Um, but I highly doubt we're gonna hear a lot of testimonies like what we heard just now from you, um, of someone whose faith was reconstructed or came alive again um, through an influencer, uh, through an Instagram mm. influencer. And so I wonder, you know, as we're watching this shifting that's happening in our world and the ways that because you wrote this book before the pandemic. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and a lot has happened since. You could not have even known what was going to happen. Right. But I, I wonder as you're, you're watching the shifting that's happening, uh, what, what is at stake for us?
2: Yeah, so yeah, so much. Um, I I completely agree with with what you said, Terabeth. That you know, human beings don't have a choice whether or not uh, they are going to be formed. Every human is Mm -hmm. being formed, like every moment Mm -hmm. of every day.
1: Everything around formation is the
2: yeah. Formation is the air we breathe, Mm -hmm. and um, you know, Jamie Smith, James K. Smith, he talks about. How humans are liturgical animals, and we live leaning forward, mm-hmm. meaning we are all—we all have a, a telos, mm-hmm. right—an end toward which we are headed. There is no choice in that matter. The only choice we have is—is is whether, the only choice we have is which end, like which direction. Mm-hmm. In which direction will we lean our lives? And I think one of the most insidiously dangerous things about. Any new technology throughout h- human history, but in particular digital technologies and in, in in particular social media, you know, like you're talking about, one of the really dangerous things about it is um, it has it, its ubiquity, its pervasiveness is forming us at an accelerated rate. Yep. So you think about, you know, people talk a lot about Gutenberg and the printing press and how that had such a formational impact on entire generations of human beings and really changed human history forever. I would totally agree. But you think about just the physicality of a printing press. They would print books and then you would take a book and then you would sit down wherever, at the park or in your home or at your church, and you would have to open that book and you would have to read in long format, right? You would yeah. Most books are long format um, realities, long format mediums. Well, in the digital age, uh, many, many would call sort of the larger um, scale of time, like the information age, um, information and data has been sped up and it's been shortened. So you think back to like, you know, 30 something years ago when Neil Postman wrote um, Amusing Ourselves to Death. And and for those who are unfamiliar or haven't read that book, I, I would just highly recommend it. It's like decades old, but when you read the book, it feels like he's writing right now, wow. today. He talks about how the telegraph changed everything. And um, he's got this great line. He says that when the telegraph was, the telegraph was able to leverage um, electrical wires and technology to send messages really quickly from one location to another, he talked about how that technology severed the tie between information and action
1: hmm. and how
2: the t- he was talking about television at the time, how television media sort of accelerated that severing. Hmm. And now you fast forward to today and the digital age and social media and news media and the way it works today, the severing between information and action has become so severe, We most people don't think about the two in connection with one another. What I mean by that is, we know so much, but we be, we do and are becoming so little. Hmm. Like you go back, you know, 150 years ago before the telegraph, information traveled at the speed. The fastest it could travel was the speed of train, which was about 35 miles an hour. So what that meant was most of the information you had was really local and local information affected your actual life in that town or neighborhood or city or whatever. So most of the information you had was information you had so that you could do something with the information, you know? But now I open my phone and I can, within a matter of seconds, I can know what is happening on the other side of the planet. And I can form all sorts of opinions about those things and then sit back in my cozy, comfortable little office and do nothing about it, right? Mm -hmm. Because one, there might not be much I can do. And two, even if there is something I can do, um, I may not feel all that compelled to do much because it doesn't really affect my actual embodied life. And, And the danger in that is we begin to sort of see all of life that way through that lens, that if I can just be informed enough, I'm good to go. And I think that's utterly dangerous when it comes Mm -hmm. to the formation of human, human beings that, you know, we talk about, talk about like Jesus and, um, you know, what, what he says, uh, clearly over and over again throughout, uh, the scriptures, like he, you know, Matthew seven toward the end of his brilliant sermon on the Mount, he summarizes the sermon on the Mount, this incredible array of information, data. Amazing teaching. And then at the end of it, he basically says, Listen, anybody who hears this stuff but doesn't do it, you're like a man who um, builds his house on the sand. When the storms come, it all comes crashing down. And throughout, you know, he says over and over again, like, you've got to do this stuff. This isn't just for you to know, it's for you to do. And in essence, it's for you to embody. And I think that's like one of the grave dangers we face in the digital age, that we are allowing our people to be formed into, um, you know, uh, there's a social psychologist who likens human beings in the digital age to rats who are chasing after information pellets. You know, and he talks about how that's no way to sustain a life. It's no way um, to experience nourishment of the soul. We need a robust diet of not just information and data, but action, you know, practical embodied action in the world. So yeah, that's a long roundabout way of saying for me, I'm passionate about it because it's not, it's not judgment, it's self indictment. I've experienced that in my own life. I know so much, but I do so little and I, and, and in turn, I I am becoming less in many ways. Um, so, yeah, for me, I think, you know, analog embodied ministry, being an analog embodied church uh, is, is um, critically important in the digital age. Uh,
0: Beth Felker-Jones, Dr. Beth Felker-Jones, uh, in our last podcast, talked about the relationship between practice and theology and how practice isn't simply informed by theology, but how practice informs what it is we believe. And think, mm, yeah. And in uh, you begin your book with uh, the quote from Marshall McLuhan: "The medium is the message," which is an incredibly important statement. And so, yeah. what I'm hearing you saying is that the uh, a digital age is forming us theologically, and it probably impacts our understanding of salvation um, in the direction of 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 pure cognition or kind of a an ascent to. Uh, uh, a propositional truth instead of yeah. an understanding of salvation as embodied and incarnate. Is that fair to say? Yeah.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, this has been said by many uh, brilliant women and men, far, far brighter than me. But um, yeah, just the way you said it right there is exactly it, I think. And I see this in our congregation, amongst our people, the people I love and serve. Yeah. Many, if not most, think about um, uh, salvation as a mental ascent. If I um, intellectually know and believe a set of beliefs, if I adhere to them intellectually, mentally, in thought, then I get this golden ticket to Willy Wonka's chocolate factory called heaven, and I can redeem it when I die So there we go. Like, I'm good to go. And now in my physical body, in my real life, in the real world, I can just now go about my day because I checked that off the checklist and, you know, I checked that box. But yeah, if 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 what Jesus says throughout the Gospels and if what Paul writes throughout so much of the New Testament is true, then salvation is um, worked out in our bodies. That's right. It's worked out in our bodies in... In our everyday realities, it is a surrendering and a, a laying down of um, of, our, of our entire whole selves on a daily basis. You know, Dallas Willard has this fantastic line, uh, well-known. He says, grace is opposed to earning. It is not opposed to effort. And I think in the modern Western world where we have this misunderstanding that salvation is Um, essentially just believing the right things in our minds, uh, we use that misbelief, misguided belief, to excuse ourselves from participating in the work of our salvation every day. We think that it demands nothing of us, Mm -hmm. that it doesn't require effort. And it is certainly true. There's no way we could could earn the grace of God. If we could earn it, it wouldn't be grace. It would be payment or a wage. You know, we can't earn it. But once received, the grace of God, I think by its very nature, demands participatory effort. And in my own life and in the lives of so many of the people that, that I love and serve, I think that's a real struggle You know, in a time when um, less and less effort is being demanded of us. If I want something to eat or if I want a pair of blue socks, I can push a couple buttons on my phone and there's the food at my door 30 minutes later there's the socks, you know, in my mailbox the next day. And um, that's that's wonderful when it comes to some of those conveniences in life, but that's no way to form um, a spiritually robust life and and walk with Jesus.
1: Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of The Pastor's Table where we had a wonderful conversation with J.Y. Kim. And, you know, for me, there are days, uh, really hard days of ministry that knock the wind out of me. And I need to hear other pastors talk about their love for the church, and it helps nourish my love and my heart and my hope for the church. And that was that kind of conversation today with Jay, And I am so grateful that he is so in love with the church
0: Yeah, talking to other pastors is so helpful, which is the reason for the pastor's table. Um, We tend to be solo operators, and uh, that's really not the best model. Uh, We need each other, and we're all just trying to figure it out. We're all just working it out. We'd like you to work it out with us. Subscribe to the podcast. Listen faithfully. We believe that uh, these will be helpful. And extend the conversation. Share the podcast. Tell others about it. And join the conversation. Go to thepastorstable.com. Send us your stories. We are going to be uh, listening. We read what you send to us, and we'll be using them in future podcasts. Not specifically, uh, not in in any embarrassing way, but your conversation with us will inform our podcasts. So please consider yourself active participants in the Pastors Table.
1: And so, friends and pastors, until next time. May you be blessed as you serve faithfully in the gift of ministry that God has granted you.